0: So welcome to another Educause Community Conversation today with Jamie Marisotis, who's the president and CEO of the Lumina Foundation. Lumina Foundation is one of the largest American foundations working to increase the proportion of Americans who have college degrees, certifications, and credentials. They want to get to 60% by 2025, a really laudable goal. Also, the author of a new book, Human Work in the Age of Smart Machines, a book came out in October of 2020 and is already in its second printing. So welcome, Jamie. Thanks very much, John. Great to be with you. Before we even talk about the book, I have to say I loved the dedication. The book is dedicated to Peter and Diana, your parents. So I'm curious, what do you think uh, in this book would resonate with them the most?
1: My family's an immigrant family. My mother was born in Greece. My father was born in the US, but spoke Greek before he spoke English. And, you know, their objective for me and my three brothers was to make us better people. We used to talk about the fact that making you better means not what you earn, but what you achieve. And, you know, what they gave me was greater economic opportunity and social mobility by sending me to Bates College in Maine. They frankly didn't know what college was, except that we were all going. That was their objective. And, so, you know, I look at at my education at Bates. Bates is the alma mater of one of the great civil rights heroes of the last century, Benjamin Elijah Mays, who was Martin Luther King's mentor and he said in his autobiography which is called Born to Rebel that Bates provided the context which supported my choice to be free. It's a it's a famous quote that all Bates graduates know and you know, to me that's what human work is all about. It's the work that only humans can do and it allows you to make those choices to be free, to emancipate yourself, uh, not only as someone who's earning money, but as someone who's serving others. And that's what human work is. It's the work that only humans can do, and it involves this virtuous cycle of learning, earning, and serving that gives us opportunities for social mobility and for meaning and purpose and dignity. You know, I think that's what my parents wanted for me, John, and that's what
0: people want from work in the current era. And as the first generation college student, son of factory workers, your story (laughs) resonates uh, with me quite a bit. As we think about our parents and their expectations of work, they did not see artificial intelligence coming. Uh, So it's just such an important part of your book. But what's the short answer to the question of, you know, is AI a force for good relative to workforce or this just tremendous challenge?
1: You know, I think the answer is both. Uh, Ultimately, I believe that uh, what we know about technology is that technology has always created more opportunities than it's destroyed. But along the way, it does destroy opportunities. And so, you know, we've been talking over the last few years about AI and work and about what, you know, I I jokingly call the robot zombie apocalypse that's coming because everyone seems to think that uh, we will see major, major disruptions in work. Maybe. I think there will be creative destruction and a building happening at the same time. I'm not sure that this era is any different, but what I do think is different in terms of what we need to do in this era is better prepare ourselves for this work that only humans can do. And that means that we've got to focus on building those human work traits and capabilities. So if meaning and purpose and dignity is what we want, it means that we've got to build our human traits, our our capacity for compassion, for empathy, our ability to be ethical, Um, Our focus on collaboration and creativity. These are the things that make us uniquely human. Machines can do a lot of things really well. We should embrace what AI can do. It can establish patterns, it can use speed, it can build on algorithms to dig deeper and deeper into data sets. All of those things are really good. Uh, What we should be doing as humans is not the work that's left over after the machines do their part, but focusing on building our human traits and capabilities that make us more effective, more productive,
0: happier human workers. And so all eyes then turn to higher education to some extent are we creating students who are going to be able to thrive in this this world that you are are painting a picture of? Are there one or two colleges or universities that you see as leading the way in terms of positioning themselves to succeed in this brave new world?
1: Oh, there are so many great examples. You know, one that people talk about a lot because it's a national institution is Southern New Hampshire University in part because of the competency-based learning model that they've sort of brought to the national stage um, and the B2B model that they've built uh, with College for America, but also because they've reinvented themselves essentially by hedging their bets. They're still a traditional liberal arts institution and they're a large online provider and they're doing both really well. Another example from the book uh, that I mentioned is Amarillo College in, in the Texas Panhandle. And uh, you know this is a school that I think is Serving the people that we are talking about in the modern era, in what will hopefully be the post-COVID era, uh, you know, a few years ago, uh, the Amarillo College had a graduation rate of nine percent, and you know, their president Russell Lowry Hart um, said that you know what was really getting in the way for those students was things like childcare and transportation. Those were the biggest hurdles for the students in terms of their success. And so he set up a series of wraparound support services to meet the students' needs in the non-academic areas. Their completion rate is now over 50%, which is very high for, for your two-year college. <laughs> and you know, at the end of the day, Russell says that the key was to meet students where they are to address their life circumstances. I think that's a really important lesson as the country's uh, tumultuous uh, uh, environment right now because of COVID is really upending what students are doing and, and how they're approaching learning.
0: Yeah, full disclosure, I'm on the advisory board for uh, Southern New Hampshire's a global education movement. If you're familiar with that, to me, it's one of the most exciting uh, things happening, uh, giving, using technology, using online, using competency based education to put um, fully accredited degrees in the hands of refugees in some of the most desperately poor refugee camps across the world. I just it's think. It's a great you know, model. You know, painting the way for for the, the op. I mean, I, I think your book is honest. I really appreciate that. And it's blunt and it's direct about the challenges, I but it's optimistic too, right?
1: Yeah. You know, I am optimistic about the future. I do believe that uh, we have the capacity to continue to reinvent ourselves as humans um, and as human workers, but we've got to set about the task of actually doing that. And it really is a virtuous cycle of learning, earning, and serving others that Uh, is is what makes us human workers. And if we set about understanding that the learning and the working processes are not separate, distinct parts of your life, you know, first you learn, then you work, but in fact, they're integrated, they're interconnected. Uh, You know, I talk about in the book, this idea of wide learning, that learning has to take place in a wide time context, uh, serving a wide range of people, and ultimately uh, addressing a wide range of content, both the sort of core skills, uh, the the basic numeracy and literacy that you need, but also building those human traits and capabilities, or what I like to call, John, the durable skills. Some people call them soft skills, and I think hard versus soft is the wrong way to think about it. It's the things that are foundational and then the, you know the things that are really durable that are going to serve you well, but that you're going to have to continue to refine and refresh over the course of your life. To me, that's what's really important about thinking about how we set about integrating, learning, and earning, and serving over the course of an entire work lifetime. Now, what was your undergraduate degree in? Um, my undergraduate degree at uh, Bates College in Lewiston, Maine, was uh, political science.
0: Okay. I, I, I get a, the sense of a real liberal arts curiosity <laughs> running through the book, which is one of the things I really liked, uh, because you you're repeatedly asking us to question our assumptions and the way we think and talk about things um you know you just talked about learning and a lot of people see those as you know mutually exclusive you're either focused on one or the other um i think you also take on one of my favorite false dichotomies that needs to go away which is between education and workforce that you're either focused on one or the other you know my i've thought a lot about storytelling because my Uh, bachelor's degrees in English. And it it seems to me like uh, I was hoping for English major for you, but you didn't come through, but you're close. Um, It seems to me that these narratives that are so powerful don't ever go away. They just get replaced by something more powerful. Um, And so what do you think is the compelling narrative that can, uh, can can replace those that say, well, you're either in education or workforce?
1: You know, I think it's probably a narrative that was outdated even before the 2008-2010 recession, even before COVID. And you know, I think what we have to realize that uh, in both of these cases, the Great Recession and now the environment we're facing in the post-COVID world, is that when we prepare people for human work, it's obvious that neither training devoid of broader learning nor education devoid of, of preparation for work is going to give people what they need. And so you know, we've had this uh, view for a long time that education's in one place, workforce is somewhere else, and in fact, they really are parts of the same thing. Now, there are specific skills that you can learn through workforce training programs that are useful, but you should always have those foundational things, those things that will also um, help you uh, develop the durable traits that over time will serve you well. Um, And in the education side, we always were preparing people for work, even though in higher ed, we often said we weren't. People were coming to our institutions and they're certainly coming now because part of what they wanted out of it was to get a good job and to lead a good life. And so, you know, I think that uh, those barriers have broken down. I'm not sure they were ever really valid, the distinctions between the two. But as I said before, what we really need is wide learning, a broad integrated system focused on the individual learners where the learners are really at the center.
0: I just, I I love appreciative inquiry ways of thinking instead of pointing to everything that's not working trying to point to something some some place where that dichotomy isn't isn't alive and I, everybody talks about germany but actually i think you could argue that that dichotomy is almost stronger because students at a, at a much younger age than in other countries are are making a decision to do one path or another is there a, a system of of education that you think has figured this out you know, I don't think so. I don't think that
1: the I'm a big fan of learning from the models of of other countries, and um, I don't think that we have a model that is um unique in every way. So I think learning from other experiences and then applying to them to our unique context is something that's really important. I sort of like the way the Canadians have approached what they are doing. They have emphasized this earlier career. Um, more skills-based approach that then puts you on these pathways that take you over a longer time period of, of learning and working. I like some of the Scandinavian and the Singaporean models, which are very rigorous, uh, but there's not one model that we should learn from. But I think we should not adopt, but adapt uh, from, from other countries. You know, the German experience uh, with uh, the apprenticeship model is a really good one. I'm I'm in favor of increasing apprenticeships but apprenticeships need to work in a much wider context. We tend to think of apprenticeships in a very narrow set of, of job fields. And I think we should be apprenticing in a wide array of fields. That would be one way to sort of address the broad uh, economic model of the US that really is different than most of these other countries.
0: Great answer. Hey, Jerry, I'm gonna, I'm gonna provide a simpler question that you might wanna use instead of my rambling one and just say, are there any countries that you think get this right? something like that, just because I think that's the great, the, the great part of your answer. Um, so back to um, the conversation. So crises um, bring out the best in people sometimes, and and sometimes that's true of systems as well. Do you think the the cluster of crises we're dealing with now, COVID, pandemic, financial, do you think it's done that? or Or is it just revealing fault lines in education and maybe in workforce training systems?
1: Yeah, it's it's a great question. I, I think that the um, overlapping crises of COVID-19, uh, racial injustice, the economic dislocation that we've seen have uh, done more to reveal the fault lines that were there and not necessarily take us down, down new paths. They've also probably accelerated what we um, needed to be doing, which is to recognize those important connections between education and workforce training uh, that we've been talking about. But, you know, I do think that we've gotta do a better job of making racial justice and equity core to what we do in the system. I do think that we need to do a better job of preparing people for these uniquely human tasks, uh, the critical thinking, the problem solving, the collaboration, the communication that makes us unique as human workers. And I think we'd need to do a, a better job of ultimately recognizing that learning, earning, and serving are part of an integrated system, uh, not something that you're gonna do once in your lifetime.
0: When you meet with college and university presidents uh, what what do you go to those kinds of conversations wanting to stress? What do you think is the biggest obstacle to the kind of change you advocate for higher education? You know part of the challenge
1: for our industry and it's an understandable challenge is that we have become risk averse in part because we have long been the engine of economic progress and social mobility for American society. So it's a classic case of aversion to, to risk and change because the model has worked very well for the country up until this moment. Uh, so I think that, that's one issue. The second is a belief in the durability of the model, right? So if the model has worked up until this point, let's not upend it. But I think we have an opportunity and the opportunity for higher ed is that um, in this human work environment, what we say we've always done well is really about human work skills, right? So, you know, we say that our greatest uh, contribution to society is that we prepare people for a long life of work um, and, and living where they can be those critical thinkers and those problem solvers and those communicators and, and the people who can really be analytical and reason in a way and be ethical and participate in our, in our democratic system. Um, To me, this is the opportunity for higher education. But in order to do that, we are going to have to change the model so that it is not simply one where you have to run through a time-based, time-limited model where you're always focused on a core set of majors and learning opportunities. You need to focus on a much wider set of human traits and capabilities. And we're going to have to do this over the course of people's lives. So this is not a one-and-done model from the higher ed perspective. Or,
0: from the perspective of the of the learner worker so it's a point of pride that this question now two thirds into our interview is the first one with the word technology in it <laughs> so <laughs> Predictably, I want to uh, talk a little bit about the role of technology. So you're, you're talking in your book very persuasively about reimagining higher education. And interestingly, a lot of the disruption you're talking about is caused by technology. Um, but, but what do you think about that intersection between technology and higher education? Is that going to be a fundamental part of this reimagining that you write about?
1: I think it has to be. Um, you know, technology always results in inexorable change. There's no reason to believe that it's not going to in in this case. You know, with the pandemic, I think what we'll see um, in the coming months and, and next few years is some snapback to some of the things that we did before. Uh, we've learned a lot of things from the pandemic. The pandemic has been the largest unplanned, large-scale experiment in education and training that we've ever had. And so we've learned some things that I think are good. What I think we will see going forward is a lot more hybrid learning because I think we will understand that technology serves certain kinds of learners in certain circumstances really well. Um, I also think that we understand both the opportunities and the limitations of the current technology. I also think that we're gonna see greater confidence among consumers about technology and that we'll probably see increasing pressure on the institutions about costs. You know, Part of what's happened in the last year is these questions about, well, why am I still paying the same sticker price if I'm getting a product that seems to be delivered in a substantially different way? And that's a pressure on us that I think we're gonna have to respond to as as a higher ed sector. But ultimately I believe that we will be using more technology, using it in more hybrid and integrated ways. And I think that the key for higher education is to embrace that and understand the unique role that we play in delivering people for society that have those human traits and capabilities that make them more successful as human workers.
0: As we think about technology and higher education in the context of workforce, I'm thinking of the article you wrote in 2016 for Educause Review on credentials reform. I don't know if we ever told you, but that was actually one of our top 10 most popular articles in 2016. So now here it is five years later. Uh, How has that reform progressed? Well, thank you for remembering
1: my, my writing from five years ago. That's good. Oftentimes, people forget about what I wrote as soon as I wrote it. So I'm, I'm, very, I'm, I'm really grateful, John. You know, One of the things that's changed since I wrote that article is that um, student-centeredness has increased. I think the colleges and universities have done a better job of embracing the student as a unit of analysis. I think that's one of the points I tried to make in the piece. Um, I don't think we've made a lot of progress on learning, not seat time being the, the primary mode of how we think about measuring educational progress. Some of that has to do with regulatory barriers, uh, particularly for financial aid. Uh, but I think that that hasn't gone as quickly as I thought it would, though I think the pandemic is going to accelerate some of that. And you know, the good news is that we now have an enterprise called Credential Engine, um, which is actually trying to help create a, a better understanding of the meaning behind credentials. In other words, what students should know and be able to do by making credential transparency real and using technology, using this technology called credential transparency descriptive language to actually articulate it, um, drive it to the web using this new descriptive language and allow employers as well as consumers to be able to access that information in real time. So I, credential engine will take a while to build um, to have the the uh, uh, sort of of uh, the balance of the data and the number of credentials that we need in the system, but I think over time, our understanding about credential reform is going to get better and better. And I think we are making progress since I since I wrote that piece.
0: I think it has to get better. I, you may not know we're actually one of the foundational partners with Credential Engine through with ACE and others. That it is just such important work. You can't reimagine higher education as long as you're still using the terms to (laughs) describe it that go back that's exactly right 100 years so uh we'll we'll continue to watch that and uh and work with you on that and lumina on that Uh, so this book isn't your first um, book on work you've been thinking about it and writing about it for a while dare i ask what's your next book well my
1: book from five years ago was called america needs talent which was sort of my brain dump uh as a guy with a public policy background about education policy, urban policy, immigration policy. This book, obviously, is trying to make an argument about the nature of work and how we are going to better prepare people for work. I have a deep interest in equity and justice issues. I may focus on that. Um, Who knows, John, maybe I'll write a book about wine tasting. Uh, It's it's hard to know right now. I I have lots of interest. We'll have to see. (laughs)
0: It was a radically unfair question. <laughs> I'll acknowledge it. So, speaking of unfair, uh, when when I was thinking of working and and reading your book, I, I had a wonderful rabbit hole. I went down remembering the first time I read Studs Terkel's Working, and I thought somebody needs to do a new version of Working. You know, really a deep dive into the work life of people, and and it'd be really interesting to think of somebody. Doing a version of that, anticipating what this future work life could be like. Yeah, ultimately, I think, it's about um, people. Turkle's working was
1: uh, from the seventies, if I recall. You know, one of the things that I recall him him sort of profiling in the people that he talks about in the book is that you know, work is this search for meaning as well as money, and I think that's a really interesting contemporary point, as we point to evidence that. American workers increasingly say that meaning is what they want. In fact, there's Gallup data that shows that even for the lowest wage workers, they're willing to give up some money for meaning uh, because they want purpose, dignity, social mobility. Those are the kinds of things they want from work. So I think um, Turkle's ideas are probably durable. uh, But at the same time, it would be interesting to sort of update them by talking to a much more modern set of workers since most of the kinds of workers I recall him him talking about in that book, we don't even have those job categories today. So that work has changed in that sense.
0: Well, we've been talking about work. We've been talking about Studs Terkel's book, Working. I'm recalling that uh, that book was made into a musical. So I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe if we wait, we'll eventually uh, see the musical version of your book. Human more. work,
1: the musical. I, I like it. I, I think can, I could see uh, I can see a lot of the characters. I profile about two dozen characters in, in the book, uh, real human workers to try to tell tell their stories. And uh, boy, it'd be great to see who would play some of these characters. Actually, one of the characters I mentioned in the book is a professional wrestler. And so that would be interesting. Maybe he could play himself in, in the movie. Who knows?
0: Somebody's got to buy those rights now. They could be snapped up. You know, one of the brooding thoughts throughout the book, I think, is I'm thinking of you writing this book in a time when democratic systems were stressed. And you seem to be at the same time you're thinking about work, also really thinking about the project of democracy in America. Was I hearing that right?
1: Yeah. You know, I think it's one of the things that has surprised people the most about the book. I I wrote this book, uh, you know, primarily in 2019 and 2020. And yet there's an entire chapter devoted to democracy and human work. Part of what was on my mind was the rise of authoritarianism. And, you know, what we were seeing then, and this is, of course, before January 6th, you know, this idea that stoking fear, fear of change, fear of advantage, fear of the other is clearly one of the clear threats to our, to our liberal democracy in the U.S. and, and other parts of the world and you know a lot of that has to do with the way in which information bubbles reinforce uh, those anti-democratic tendencies. So you see that in COVID, false information about COVID. You've seen that with some of the things about QAnon, et cetera. And the connection, I think, to human work and learning is that the more you develop your critical thinking, your problem solving, your analytic skills through formal education, the more durable your skills are when it comes to your understanding of democracy. So you know, there's research that shows that a third of Americans who haven't gone to college believe that having a strong leader is good for the country, and about a quarter say military rule would be good for our country. But when you then ask people who have college degrees, it's much, uh, much lower. And those people are more likely to vote and volunteer and, and work in their communities and contribute to charity. So I think the real connection is we've got to cultivate all the ethical decision-making and critical thinking and analytic reasoning and all the other democracy enhancing traits and capabilities and a lot more people, to me, that's the real connection between the threats that we're seeing to democracy now and preparing people for this human work future.
0: Well, you've raised a lot of questions, and I'm pretty sure a bunch of people listening have already logged on and ordered a copy of your book. I hope so, because I think it adds a really important voice to this um, crucial conversation as a country and really internationally. So thank you, Jamie Marisotis, for joining us today for our community conversation. John, great to be with you.